I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, can Facebook's new currency save its relationship with media companies? The gender balance is rewritten at ITV and the televised lie detector has been permanently unplugged. Plus, the government's porn block legislation is delayed again. And in the media quiz, our guests try to guess who made which prescient prediction about modern life. It's all to come in today's Media Podcast. And joining me today is Ian Dale, LBC presenter and breakout star of the Conservative Leadership Hustings. <laughs> um, <laughs> how did it feel? Unintended. <laughs> <laughs> to be live streamed, basically, on every news network known to man when you were supposed to be doing an internal event for the Conservative Well, Party. I didn't even know it was going to be. I knew it was going to be on the internet, but I didn't know that Sky News or the BBC were going to do all two hours of it. Um, but given the revelations about Boris Johnson the previous day, I suppose it was inevitable. Um, and it was... It was quite an uncomfortable experience in some ways because I knew I was going to get an adverse reaction, frankly, whatever I asked, and I had to ask it. I mean, imagine if I had sat there and just asked Boris Johnson about Brexit and not even mentioned um, the elephant in the room. And I said to Brandon Lewis, the Tory party chairman, on the way up, I said, I will get booed for this. And I was. Although it wasn't just people booing me. It was actually, there were quite a lot of people shouting out, answer the question, Mm. which that got sort of slightly covered up in in the media coverage of it all. Um, But I I knew the question I was going to ask him, so I asked it. I thought he would give some sort of answer, but he didn't give any answer at all. He started talking about route master buses. So I had to continue with it. And And did you feel that pressure then? Did you know at the time you were being broadcast on the BBC? I did at that point, So so did you feel that your audience was bigger than the audience in the hall and did that change the way you were I don't think it? that really went through my mind I, I just I, I don't believe in wargaming these things I think that can become very static a lot of um, I mean Andrew Marr says that he will wargame all his interviews now for him that works for me it doesn't for me it all has to be spontaneous although I, I'll admit the first question wasn't spontaneous but the rest of it I just did as I went along and um, I look I knew there was a lot of interest in it clearly because and a lot of lobby journalists were texting me all throughout the morning um, about saying you are going to ask this aren't you which I found quite insulting in some ways because of course I was going to ask it um, and they, some of them saying look we're relying on you because we're, we're never going to get to interview him I, I did an interview with Theresa May a couple of years ago which got huge amounts of coverage but this was like 10 times more than that and it was a really weird feeling and the social media reaction was interesting where initially most people were saying well well done Ian Dale you had to ask that question but as time went on the Tory tribe started circling the wagons 
uh, sort of how could you even ask the question in the first place, outrageous invasion of privacy. Well, it wasn't actually. He's running for prime minister. It's a perfectly legitimate question to ask. And as you say, you had to ask it. Uh, OK, well, talking of uh, politics, also with us today, making her media pod debut, senior analyst at Edelman and host of Primarily 2020 podcast, Karen Robinson. Hi. Hi. So Primarily 2020 is about the Democratic primaries it's in 2020. Primarily about the primaries for 2020. That's that's how we got to the name, yeah. So it's a, I say it's about the politics, policies and personalities of the 2020 primary because we've got 24 candidates. We might have 25 by now. I haven't that's checked the That's more than the Tory leadership. It's more than the Tory leadership. It's so many that we couldn't fit them into two back-to-back nights of debates of 10 people each. So we had to cut some people out. So... It's, um, it's, there's a lot going on over there. And um, living here in the UK, are there parallels between the way the media covers the Conservative Party leadership challenge, which actually is tr- quite truncated at only a month now, yeah. versus the Democratic primaries? That's a good question. I haven't really thought about it in terms of comparisons with the, the Tory party leadership. I think you've got a much smaller number of candidates and you've got a much kind of more immediate, quicker process. So um, I don't think that's the case because here, let's be honest, it's kind of all been about Boris Johnson from the beginning with, you know, lots of kind of also-rounds. In the Democratic contest, I don't feel like we have Joe Biden, who's the kind of front runner in terms of the total polling that he's getting. But I think there's a real feeling it could be anyone. Um, And I think the media and the public are kind of excited by that feeling of like, people are just coming out of the woodwork, literally it could be anyone. Pete Buttigieg, this young mayor from a small town in Indiana, um, kind of came out of nowhere and is now a front runner. You've got a lot of really serious candidates of all kinds of backgrounds and people just kind of don't know where where it's going to go. And then in the background of that, there's a big kind of internal debate that the Democratic Party are having about how we prioritize our policy agenda versus just get Trump, get Donald Trump out under any circumstances. Um, and so, and then a lot of anxiety underpinning it. So it's a real drama. Boyd Hilton is here as well, fellow podcaster. Hello. Entertainment director of Heat, is that still the title? Correct. Correct. You haven't yeah. become grand high master yet. I'm also deputy to Pilot TV magazine, free with Empire every quarter. Yeah, well, actually, now you mentioned that. Last time you were here, yeah, yes. that was going to be ah. a monthly glossy, oh, wasn't go. it? It's now quarterly, and it comes with Empire and the new issues out now. Uh, you were nodding along when yes. Ian was talking about politics. Well, I watched Ian's um, marvellous stint on, at the Hustings um, on Saturday. Saturday. I mean, this is going to sound over the top, but it, I think you and like Emma Barnett, for example, on Five Live, have become hugely admired stars because of the way you've handled these people, these, um, these contenders. And Emma Barnett interviews different um, you know, stand-ins for the Conservative Party leadership um, challenges every day, and she absolutely devastates them. It's a brilliantly entertaining But it's thing. almost, and it's to almost get someone... luck that she does, doesn't it? Because clearly yeah. what's happening is these people are dropping in on people's shows with an hour before broadcast. Oh, Boris is here. Yeah. And yeah. You know, it just so happens right. that there are broadcasters of that quality that can do those interviews, right. but they but, should be prepped. But it's incredibly um, satisfying when an interviewer asks the questions you want asked. You know, and I love Emily Maitlis, I think she's great, but that debate was a shambles. It was a complete farce. And a complete farce. And it got to the point we couldn't even hear what some of them were saying in their attempt to explain how the hell they're going to get Brexit through when Parliament you know, can stop it, all of that. And it was and you just emerged with a feeling I, it, was, it was a disaster. Well, Whereas she, she was really let down, she by, was let down. by the people who did I that. Agree. And that was a prime example of a programme that was designed by committee. I mean, Karen, from an American point of view, is it ridiculous that it seems Boris Johnson 
is going to be our Prime Minister without any further TV debates. Well, it does seem extraordinary to me. I mean, he's done a fantastic job of avoiding any need to answer questions. And, and I think your whole leadership system is, is obviously very different than ours. I was really taken by the Nick Ferrari interview because I think the, the thing that got the play in that was that he asked the same question over and over again. But then there was the piece at the end of the interview after it was supposed to be over oh, yeah, where funny. Nick Ferrari really went for him because it was like Boris was ready to stand up and walk out and he was like, well, you know, you're avoiding scrutiny, Nick Ferrari. Yeah. And then he just banged him with question after question. Did you Have you taken drugs? Have you done this? And, and then he's like, are you done now? Would you like to go now, Boris? Or can I ask another question? Oh, I can ask another question. It was, it was really interesting because I thought they'd been quite friendly in previous interviews but that one was really it seems yeah, like it from weird. a personal professional point of view it felt like he felt challenged and he wanted to rise and to a it. lot of people said well if he can't stand up to scrutiny for me and dale and nick ferrari who most people would think were sympathetic towards him that's a bit of an issue okay uh, for anyone who's listening to this on monday or later in this conversation already <laughs> sounds very antiquated oh. let's move on to some of the other media stories of the week and media companies should be liable for facebook comments made by the public on their pages. This is according to a judge's ruling in Australia this week. I'll say that again, a judge's ruling in Australia. So Karen, what does this mean for how media companies use Facebook in Australia, but actually around the world? Around the world. Well, it's, it's fascinating to me, this story, because what it basically says is it, ma- it, it makes page owners liable for comments that are made as if they need to pre-moderate those comments on Facebook. But Facebook doesn't allow for pre-moderation. The tool doesn't facilitate you to do that. If you're a page owner, you can't block comments until they've been until they've arrived. You can use some tools to pre-moderate specific types of language, like the C word, for example. Um, you can block them from appearing, but you can't proactively block all contents until they've gone live. But under this judge's ruling, companies would not be liable for what people post. For Facebook, I think this is really a big threat because um, if this became, and I think the judge's ruling may be overturned because it's just technologically impossible and, and difficult. I mean, it's not impossible, but it isn't technologically possible under Facebook's current framework. If this were the, to be upheld and if this wound up being the case, they would either have to change how the tool works quite fundamentally, um, or I think page owners would decide that Facebook is too big a legal liability and a risk for them. But it's not just Facebook, is it? I mean, if you, I, when I've been doing my debates with the Tory le- or interviews with the Tory leadership candidates on YouTube, it's all streamed live. And then you have the comments down the right-hand side, which I had an email literally half an hour before I came to do this from a, a, an Asian listener whose 10-year-old daughter is actually quite interested in my programs, bizarrely. <laughs> and she was saying that she has to stop her looking at these live interviews so she doesn't see the comments. Because often they have no relation to what you're interviewing the person about. But they are, they are filth, they're disgusting, they are, they are just things that you wouldn't want anybody to see. Now, the... They couldn't be pre-moderated. It's effectively a live chat room. But if anyone is going to be responsible for them legally, surely in that case it's YouTube, not you. I mean, it just seems bizarre that the platform that is allowing yeah. the comments is, are, the, are allowed to get away with it. And the people that are hosting the debate that people are commenting under, they're held liable for it. Yeah, it's really bizarre. I do, this surely is a case of a judge not understanding the technology, isn't it? That, that I feel he's seeing... You know, you could show the publication, you could show the article, and then underneath it the comments that are all being published effectively on Facebook, but via the third-party publication, and the judge not really understand... I mean, I don't know for sure, obviously, but I just get the sense the judge hasn't fully understood the process by which this happens. It's not like... You know, if you if you click on a publication's website and they have a, they have a comment section and people are making clearly, Ill- you know, illegal or offensive or whatever comments and they're not 
pre-moderated and they get published and they and it's libelous, then surely they're held to mm. account. But in this case, it's completely bizarre and peculiar. It feels like he just has not understood the process. And his argument, Karen, is that you, because of the kind of filter that you did describe earlier, where you can filter out the C-word, for example, you could filter out prepositions or like the and and... So then it is every comment, so then they could moderate it, so they're making excuses for themselves. Yeah, so basically what he's saying is you, could, is bizarre, you could effectively break the system so that it doesn't work as intended, and therefore it's your fault as opposed to the system's fault. And I, I, don't, I don't buy into that argument legally. I do think, though, I have a lot of sympathy, as Ian is saying, for the fundamental problem that news in particular, you know, content that's entertainment-oriented, that's fine, but people consuming news are subject to a lot of purely defamatory, hostile, misogynistic, racist, horrific content in the comments field if they should look for it. And I don't think that we need to tolerate that. But they're subject to that on all forms of social media, aren't they? Twitter is, Twitter is, is now a cesspit of, of that, you know, effectively. If you're, if you're a person of any, of any level of fame, effectively, yeah. or particularly a woman... Or a woman on the yeah. internet. Or a woman on the internet, then you're subject to all that. What can, uh, you know, they don't seem to Twitter, be able to do Twitter much about it. Twitter could do something about that. They Twitter, could do more. Twitter could yeah. ban... All, all these Twitter handles with lots of numbers on them, most of which have probably come from Russia or what, what, who knows. But the Telegraph, they stopped having comments on any of their articles because they just decided that they didn't want to be associated with this kind of thing anymore. I wonder what it might mean for, to use a horribly wanky, zeitgeisty phrase, people's personal brand as opposed to media organisations, though. Because the sort of Tommy Robinsons of the world, the way they've been using Facebook is they've posted up things which they very carefully walk the line and would be able to defend as not libelous and not extreme, and they've pushed it just as far as they can go within the law, on the basis that in the comments underneath, people will say all sorts of hideous, racist, homophobic, nasty things, and that's not them, that's their fan base. Mm. It's a way of energising people with mm. a sort of coded warning that they then take a step further in the comments. But it tells us If they were responsible about... for it, no, would they it... publish it at all? Well, if, the, if their motivation is what you say it is, it, it's very odd because the, the people who are posting all these horrible things underneath surely tell us exactly what they are really like. If they weren't allowed to have people posting, I wonder if their own posts would become that much more extreme. I don't mm. know. But they'd be responsible for it. Well, it's quite interesting, isn't it, to think you'd be responsible for what your fans I mean, say about you as an individual? In, in the days when I, I used to blog, and I, I would get a lot of these comments, and I would delete some of them, um, but... Should you really be held responsible as an individual? I mean, big companies, you can have an argument about, but an individual, should you be responsible for what someone says in the comment section of your own blog? I'm not so sure. I think it gets to a very big picture. I mean, I, I used to be a social media specialist, and I've stepped away from doing that more towards more kind of broader communications planning because I got really fed up with social media as a platform for brand conversation. Because originally, the big idea was that it allowed for this two-way conversation, that you could have a meaningful interaction between a brand or an organization and its fans or followers, and they could listen and hear, and, and that's not happening. You know, that's there was a time when you know you'd see some of that and it felt like it was going in that direction but now it's just shouting into the ether and so I, I kind of feel like we just I want a quieter space now and I think a lot of consumers are feeling this way that they just they want less shouting and a quieter place to interact with think, people I think a lot of businesses are taking that view um, give you an example on Saturday when I was doing the Tory hustings I mistakenly always the Tory hustings <laughs> well it, it, it is relevant to this I promise you I wore some very bright red socks and because of the awful chairs that they use your trousers ride up and you reveal all of the socks and anyway a lot of people commented on them and I just said well I got them from the at London Sock Co and then I got somebody saying this is outrageous that Ian Dale's paid to promote socks and use does it 
I thought, what warped mind thinks that just because I praise something and say I like them, that means that I've been paid yeah. to do oh, it. Because right. influencer culture. Uh, in other Facebook news, the company has announced their own cryptocurrency set to launch next year, which promises a more accessible way to send money online. Uh, Boyd, what can you tell us about Libra? Oh my god! I mean, thanks for coming to me. I don't understand cryptocurrencies. I don't. I was get... hoping you would. No, I have the clue. It's but this mystifying. Is the... All I know is this is the cryptocurrency for people who don't yes. understand cryptocurrencies. Is it really though? though? Yeah, it's supposed to be easy. Okay. Well, all I know is that Facebook have gathered loads and loads of quite a lot of financial groups and other um, other companies, and they've grouped together to make this cryptocurrency easier to use. So, that, isn't the theory? I read the theory is that people who don't have don't bank, have bank accounts, basically, for whatever reason. I don't know why you wouldn't particularly have a bank account. Can use this currency to buy stuff, to access stuff on the internet mostly. So it's, that people say, oh, this could be a way of making it easier to pay, to make micropayments, for, to, to have access to paywalled news sites, etc. Yeah, they via Facebook. It seems like a very long way round to me. I <laughs> thought just it to was pay for, for people who are caught by their webcams in bed <laughs> doing things that maybe they ought not to be to do, and then they have to pay people. two and a half yeah. thousand bitcoins. Well, did, did you see that story out of Florida last week? A, a small town in Florida was basically blackmailed by some cyber cyber attackers who basically said, we're going to lock down your systems unless you pay us a huge amount of money in bitcoin, which they did. Um, and, and which touches for me on, like, I know nothing about cryptocurrency except I don't like it. <laughs> like, it makes me nervous because what purpose does it serve apart from facilitating transactions that would otherwise be traceable. One of the things that it might facilitate, which is why it might be good news for our listeners in media organisations, is micropayments. So who can be asked to put in their credit card to give 6p to the New York Times for reading a story? But if everyone was signed up to Libra and you just clicked an article from within Facebook or WhatsApp or Instagram, which they also own, then perhaps you could agree that every time you do that, a micropayment is paid. But that's PayPal, isn't it? Yeah. And don't at some point you have to accrue the crypto cryptocurrency via some kind of pre-existing well, this is the payment, don't you? So you have to key in your credit card or yes. whatever. Yeah. Which is why their argument that they're for the unbanked is slightly ridiculous. It's weird, yeah. Uh, Alex Herner, the Guardian, did a really interesting tweet on this basis, which is if it really is for people without bank accounts, then they would either have to offer a cash machines where you could pay in or B, companies would have to offer to pay in Libra their employees. Otherwise, how would you ever do it? So it's a money laundering exercise. (laughs) Well, it leads you to conclude, is there a black market version where exactly someone with a credit card buys lots of Libra and then sells it on to people who don't have bank accounts? That surely can't be the intention. Shouldn't Facebook's priority right now be getting rid of the you know, sorting out the extraordinary situation with Cambridge Analytica and, you know, do, they've got a lot of issues to deal with, apart from this one. I mean, like, why are they spending time and effort? I mean, you are an expert If you it. were being super, super, ah. super cynical. Go on, man. Super cynical. I mean, and I'm not suggesting this, but, like, they got in a lot of trouble in the 2016 election for taking payments in rubles. Mm. Ah. Okay. Maybe, maybe this time they'd like to take payments in a untraceable, non-national oh. currency. That makes sense. Isn't it, isn't it probably also to do with the fact that all of these big companies... At some stage every year, they have to do two or three really, really big things that grabs me, <laughs> grab media's interest. And it mm. may be this just doesn't launch properly and it, it dies and but don't we've you think it, about it. All three of you are podcasters as well as doing your day jobs. Don't you think in, in podcast terms it's quite interesting to say to listeners, on the device that you're using now to listen to us, one tap away, send us a pound to say thanks for the episode... It would make it easier than PayPal. That's the difference. It's more convenient. I mean, PayPal is one solution, but there are... I don't understand why I need a different currency to facilitate 
But isn't that a bit like people saying, I don't know, I don't understand why I need WhatsApp when I've got text messages? No, the answer no. is, is better. That's but like why. literally, you're, what you're talking about is micropayments. Why does the micropayment have to be in a currency other than pounds or dollars or yen? Mm. Like, yeah. what, why? Yeah. Maybe, it's, maybe it's there's a good answer. I just don't know what that is. I presume that's to do with Facebook controlling so me. you think it's a great idea because instead of doing your little money raising thing that you do at the end of every episode of this, you can just say, press so your phone now. And, and you're yeah. right, more people would do that. Yeah, I think so. I might even do it. So there you are. There might be a positive answer. <laughs> uh, okay, let's talk about telly now. And all male writing teams will no longer be commissioned by ITV after the network's head of comedy, Saskia Schuster, revealed a new ambition to achieve gender balance in the writer's room. Uh, Boyd, tell us what the context for this was. Well, the context is all important. So obviously, this is one of those stories that was wildly misreported and misinterpreted. As all men are banned from telly. And exactly. <laughs> all men are banned from comedy. Monty Python would never happen again. Gorton and Simpson will be banned. You know, all this bullshit. She was very specifically addressing the issue of writing rooms within television. So writing rooms are, are kind of an American invention, really. And most American sitcoms, they may be created by one or two individuals, they may be ostensibly credited scripts to one or two individuals, but in actual fact, most of them have a group of eight, nine, ten, sometimes more, often men, mostly men, sitting in a room trying to be funny with each other, riffing on stuff and coming up with the gags for these shows. Particularly, you know, sketch shows, so your Saturday Night Live, shows like that have massive, huge, big writing rooms, um, uh, talk shows have them. I've been in um, James Corden's talk show, The Writing Room, and it was predominantly men. I mean, there were some women there. So Saskia Schuster's point is, shows that are like that cannot have all male writing rooms. And quite right, too. Imagine, these are shows that are just generally making jokes about topical things, about all, you know universal issues, and to just have a group of nerdy guys riffing off each other without any female input seems to me ludicrous. So I think it's absolutely fair. What she's not saying is that if two great, talented men came along with a great idea for a sitcom, it could not be commissioned but that's by how her. it was written up, wasn't right, it? I mean, even, on the, even the story I've got here from the BBC website was written up. I know, but it's just not, not what she was saying. Absolutely not what she was saying oh, at I'm all. glad you've enlightened me. Thank you. Because I was about to have a real go. <laughs> and the thrust Spite of... my guns. Yeah. And the thrust of your real go, Ian, would be <laughs> that we wouldn't have, as Boyd suggested, re- decades worth of great well, sitcoms that be one or two men. has gone mad. Yes. <laughs> but isn't it the case, though, Boyd, that because you said, as you just said, some sitcoms actually sort of secretly have writer's rooms. They mm. might have two credited male writers, yeah. for example, yeah. but have a writer's room full of other people. Yeah that actually it still could be the case that that sitcom written by a man or two men couldn't happen if the plan for the writing room was a non-diverse one. Oh, I mean, yeah, but I think... I mean, I, I know think, I, the thing I is, don't ITV don't commission ha- shows like that anyway, do they? They don't have sitcoms, basically, but... Well, they do. ITV2 does. So that's the thing. That's the, which is so really Plebs t- is the example, which is written by two men. Plebs, there are a few. Yeah, Time Wasters, there are a few. There are a number of ITV... Well, generally, if you want a scripted comedy on ITV2, it, on ITV, it goes to ITV2. That's their, that's their thing it, Is she also saying mm. that there wouldn't be allowed to be any all-female writing rooms? Or would that um, no, she's not acceptable. She's not saying see, that's that. where that's where I have a real issue, because at the moment... On t- I mean, broadening this out a bit, on television uh, political panels, for example, you often see all-female all panels now, which I'm, I have no objection to mm. whatsoever. You never, ever see an all-male panel anymore. Now, the response to that would be, oh, well, you've had decades of having all-male panels, which is, I suppose, a fair point. But um, I do think it, what you've got to be 
sort of fair on this and that if you have three women on one week, you shouldn't object to necessarily having three men on the next, but, I mean, why not have a little mix? I mean, to be fair, the, the incentive is called 50-50, isn't it? So the ambition is quite clearly supposed to be fair, 50-50 down the line. But well, that was a, that's a separate initiative she's launched. So she's launched, Saskia Schuster has launched her own another initiative, the 50 initiative, which is to get an equal number of females working in TV generally, I think. You know, and that's a, I, for me, you're either in favour of positive discrimination or you're not. And I, okay. I, I am. So, so far, we three men have been talking about yes. this. Yes, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> Female writing rooms, go. So I think I, a number of things. I think, first of all, my view on gender discrimination is it's really interesting in a media term because there's a lot of evidence that says people, and not just men, people who listen to voices in a room, if they hear about 25% female, think women dominate. Because it's notable to them that women are speaking. Um, so, and that's, so that's a problem, right? That, that's, that's just a problem of our perception and how, how we hear and experience and how we've heard and experienced media for a long, long time. Um, so, and this, although this is not to do with on-camera talent, it's to do with writers, I think women's voices the flea bag is obviously an example that anyone would pull out in this, but women's voices in comedy writing are really strong right now. Actually, flea bag is an example of what Ian was saying, where it would be wrong to put a man on that writing panel. That's clearly yeah. a female so, voice, so, isn't so it? Like t- having a man writing so my take it. on this is we look for we should look for balance across the piece, right? What we should be looking for is a balance of points of view. I don't mind having a couple of shows that are from an entirely male point of view, as long as there are also a couple of shows that are from an entirely female point of view, as long as the majority majority of shows are probably more balanced you know um what i object to what i find really annoying is i'm sorry this is going to sound really pointed what i find really annoying is the one woman in the writing room or one woman on the panel over and over and over again which feels tokenistic and the other the other problem is from a career structure point of view we've discovered gender inequality has a lot of causes. One of the causes is that people tend to commission people that they can relate to personally, right? So that if they find a person, someone that they can say, oh, he reminds me of me when I was younger, then they'll be more likely to commission that person. So just having more women who are in more senior positions to make commissioning decisions one would hope ultimately would wind up making it, those decisions better in the first place. It is really easy to just try and relate or to relate to people like you. And um, I mean, I do a sort of any questions type show cross question where we have four panelists and I've really tried to, as much as I can, have gender equality. But some weeks we've had four women, some weeks we've had four men. Otherwise, it can be two, two, three, one, whatever. And I've actually done, I've done a spreadsheet to actually look at what balance I've had since yeah. we started this. And left and right, Brexit, Remainer, all the sort of different things. And it's virtually impossible. I think the left and right one, we are 50-50. But it's virtually impossible, I think, to necessarily get 50-50 on anything else. Empathy is natural and human, and you don't want to like regulate it away. But what we do want is to, you know, more women in writers' rooms mean more women with experience of writing, which means more women who will show up in people's minds as people that I can work with. More, it means more women. It's it's just for everyone's benefit. Mm-hmm. It makes things more interesting, not just it, more fair. I agree, but also isn't he, he, I agree with you about the having one woman in a writers' room is ridiculous. But even but one is better than none. Saskia Schuster's think main her main project, this fifty fifty initiative, is called 5050 yeah. to try and get to that point which it should be in theory you know and it's so completely unbelievably skewed the other way particularly in tv comedy in terms of you know um, we've had a lot of comedies recently a lot of scripted sitcoms if you want to call them that but often they've been comedy dramas created 
by women recently, which is brilliant. But if you look at the mass of comedy on television still in terms of who's producing it, who's making it behind the scenes and all of that, it's extraordinary how few... And I go on set of these things all the time and visibly you see it. So all she's saying is she wants... Let's all think about it, as you have done it, by doing your spreadsheet. Mm. But there are people out there who are not doing spreadsheets and are not even thinking about it. And I think if you don't think about it, you're still going to have eight blokes in a room trying to make jokes about women. And it's also... I mean, it's also... It's ease, right? A lot of times, I know we fill slots just by... Kind of, I know when I do a lot of TV news interviews, sometimes it's just they call around until they find someone. And if you have to work a little bit harder, then you won't do it. And if the women are not top of mind, then they won't be on the list. Yeah, which is why, again, the more visible a campaign like this is, the more I think it does encourage young women to think about coming into a field like comedy. I, I think that's the point of it. Yeah. And I, I like male-inflected comedy. I like seeing a show that has a primarily male point of view because it's interesting to me because it's different than my point of view. I just don't want there to be everything. And uh, it gets a little boring after a while and comedy should never be dull. OK, sticking with ITV and the lie detector test was subject to scrutiny this week as part of MP's inquiry into the Jeremy Kyle show. Did you watch it live, Ian? Because I, I missed it and I was upset. I didn't watch it live. I would have, I would have loved that much more than an episode of the Jeremy Kyle show. But my partner did, who is not particularly into politics. <laughs> the Culture and Media Sports Select Committee, I think, is a really good example of this. Um, it used to be, I think, a really well-respected committee over the last couple of years... Um, they've done ridiculous inquiries. They are gratuitously rude to anyone that comes to before them, as if they're kind of trying to be forensic lawyers, and they're not forensic lawyers. And, and they're playing to the camera. I, I mean, they have no business talking about this. This is something for television people to discuss. It's interesting how people jump on this show, and, I mean, in some ways quite rightly, but, I mean, people, people TV critics will have criticised it before, but if, if lawmakers, if politicians had some real axe to grind about this show, they should, have, they should have ground that axe a long time ago and not waited for the show to be closed down. The show is closed down. It's not coming back. It's got no relevance to this committee. I think it's interesting how these things work, though, isn't it? Because the Jeremy Kyle show, it's almost like... It's a bit like certain situations with very famous you know, abusers who suddenly come to light and suddenly everyone feels like we always knew it was like that. With Jeremy Kyle, no one's mentioned it as far as I can make. Critics, politicians, anyone, people in TV, people like me who write about TV for a living, no one's even paid any attention to it for about a decade. Mm. And then suddenly tragic things happened involving people who've been on the show and and it became untenable for ITV to carry on with it and they got rid of it quite rightly. So I do feel on the... I, I know what you're saying about politicians jumping on the bandwagon, but if awful things have happened and if there was a, a terrible culture on the show if it was still going on I think politicians should definitely be looking into it and should definitely have a select committee about it the fact that it's acts I agree with you feels slightly pointless after the event but because what, are they, what are they going to do launch an inquiry into Love Island I mean is, well, that, is that where we've got I mean I'm to? sure they would if if there was you know if, there, if, if it was regarded as being I mean interestingly ITV has I think been affected by what's happened in Love Island. Similar, similar things have happened in Love Island. Mm. And they have kind of, they've tried to deal with it. And they have tra- changed the programme somewhat, changed, you know, the way they make it and changed the emphasis of it. And they are more sensitive to it without politicians stepping in. Yeah, I mean, so but it's not about Love Island, it's about duty of care. Right, it? it's about duty of Make care. Make sure that a public service broadcaster but, isn't exploiting but the public. Do, do we know for a fact that the guy um, took his own life as a direct result? No, no, you can never know. No, that, we don't we? know. Exactly, exactly. Well, yeah. exactly... So in that case, that is an argument that they should have waited for the coroner's report, the inquest and everything before they decided to do this. Lie detector tests are, just to be absolutely clear, scientifically totally useless. Um, They don't actually test, and this is to me really important and interesting, lie detectors don't test whether you're telling the truth or not. They test whether how emotionally 
excited you are. Mm. Now, my problem with lie detectors is Jeremy Kyle is a silly show that I never watched. When I did watch it, it made me very angry, and that's what it was designed to do. Yeah. That's what that's the type of television that it was. My problem with lie detectors isn't that it's used on programs whose entire purpose is to rile you up. My problem is it's used by quite serious organizations for quite serious purposes. The FBI in the United States uses it regularly as part of their recruitment and retention plans, right? So they're testing their staff with a completely invalid methodology. Um, Maybe that's who Jeremy Kyle will go and work for next. I, I, he would fit right in, I'm sure. We don't and know, I, do we, boy? By the way, what's going to happen with Jeremy Kyle? I well, say they want to work with him, but on what? I what do you want to see Jeremy Kyle do? Well, I interviewed the head of ITV um, programming um, a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that um, they want to do something completely different. You know, they wanted, they wanted. It's a chance to revive and refresh ITV's daytime offering anyway and so they're kind of they want to go as far away from that kind of show as they possibly can Jeremy Carr had done a few primetime specials like about crime he did mm. you know specific stories so he is a very you know compelling charismatic TV figure I think it's that's quite sh- unlikable don't you think though actually you know what in, in real life I'm sure this happens for a lot of horrendous people they're more charming and likable <laughs> he was putting on a persona where he was shouting in the face yeah. of you know someone alleged to have taken a lie detector test about whether they're having an affair or not and he was playing this ludicrous role, and it was a horrendous programme, don't get me wrong. It was awful. But I think as a human being, he's probably not as awful as you think, and equally as a presenter, he's probably better than you think. OK, we'll be back with more media news in brief after this. Car booty, cash in the attic, football my ass, fake Britain. What do all those words have in common? You guessed it, they are all titles of shows made with the help of the post-production house where I'm sitting right now, Run VT in Newman Street. With 15 offline and two online editing suites, a bass-like grading theatre, a dubbing suite and a voiceover booth, Run VT has everything to satisfy your editing needs. To see what the Run VT team can do for you, visit runvt.tv now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
Time for some media news in brief now. Ian Boyd and Karen are still with me. And the introduction of an age limit to access online porn has been delayed by six months. I think it's the second delay, isn't it, after it was due to come into effect this time on July the 15th. No, the third delay, in fact. Um, Karen, what happened this time? Oh, goodness. Um, They decided they couldn't do it. (laughs) I mean, my understanding is they couldn't work out how to make it work. No, No, it was because of the EU. And I'm going to turn to our EU correspondent here, Ian, who's chomping at the bit. This is is a prime example of why it's a great idea that we're leaving the EU, because we had to apparently inform the EU that we were bringing in this... uh, legislation and we forgot to do all the civil servants forgot forgot to do so so it's going to be delayed the toss tax, as it's become known <laughs> is going to be delayed by six months I mean, what an absolutely preposterous thing to do and if i was boris johnson or jeremy hunt i'd be making this a campaign pledge not to introduce it because it's going to affect the very people that it shouldn't affect anyone who wants to get around um going on porn sites can do will be able to do it I mean, well, they'll pay for a VPN, that's what exactly. they'll do. The point, Boyd, surely, is is that under-18s can sort of stumble across quite extreme pornography with a couple of taps of their smartphone. But that's not what this is stopping, though. No, that's, the thing. that's the ridiculous thing about it. This is stopping porn websites where you have to go to Pornhub, basically, you know, and all those places, and, and access free porn, and they're, they're trying to stop young people from doing that. Young people will still be able to accidentally come, stumble across. All the stuff that's accidental, that's not designed there for consumers of pornography to to interact with, or not interact with, but to consume, sorry to use the word consume twice in one sentence, that is what this, this ridiculous, I agree with Ian, this ridiculous um, bit of legislation is trying to do, and it's absolutely pointless. Everyone knows that you can't you can never ban, you can never stop people from accessing this kind of stuff ever. It never, ever works but technically. what's the problem? What's the problem with, with us all saying, OK, we're all adults, adults masturbate, we're happy for over-18s to do that, we're not happy for under-18s to stumble across it, therefore we'll put up a, a wall, it's not even a paywall, it's just you have to prove that you're over 18. Do you know where most porn is? is do you want to know where most porn is? If you wanted to see porn instantly, do you know where you can go? Twitter. Twitter yeah, has no exactly. content rules at all about what you can show. Yeah. If you, you can literally ha- fill your timeline with clips of hardcore porn, mm. hardcore proper of any kind, pretty much, and you and you and it will stay there unless you know that you, you break the, the law. But that's where you can go to, and that, that, this law, on, this thing is not going to address that whatsoever. You have a Twitter account if you're a child, are you? No, but so what I'm saying, but child can so access the same Twitter. Th- yeah, they can. But you can go on Tumblr. They, they, you can't um, anymore. Tumblr stopped it. So all the Tumblr porn sites have now gone to Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Tumblr porn is gone, and the Tumblrs are really upset about it. Yeah, yeah. furious. But, it's, but it hasn't just, gone away. That just proves that I don't look at Tumblr, doesn't it? <laughs> hey. But the porn hasn't gone away. That's, That's my point. But, but I do think there is a wider... I, I agree with you, this legislation, I, it, it seems like it had a lot of problems, both of implementation and of design. I do think we should, we should think about the wider social implications, though, because hardcore, often violent, extremely disturbing pornography is easily available to children... Who's, who are more technically adept than their parents a lot of the time, let's face it. And, you know, we have seen, one of the things I've been, I've, I've been looking into for, for work-related reasons, various issues around youth mental health. Um, and there are a lot of indications that we're seeing rising suicide rates, we're seeing rising rates of depression. I'm not saying, well, this is porn-related necessarily before we get there, but I've been interviewing social scientists and, and experts in youth mental health and asking them, what is causing this? And one of the things that several of the experts have said to me is um, the access to distur- the easy access to disturbing content um, through all of their social feeds, the, the nature of it, the quality of it, the quantity of it is really shaping young people's minds 
I don't think this legislation is going to solve that problem, but I do think it is a problem that needs a lot more serious consideration than we are giving it. it can, we can't just slap a Band-Aid on it. But I think that's a different issue. I, I agree with that. I think, you know, the proliferation of all kinds of pornography, from extreme to, you know, absolutely harmless, is true. But I don't think this legislation addresses that at all. Because as you said, this, you know... Kids can't accidentally stumble upon that extreme, horrendous stuff. You, that just does not well, happen, I'm sorry. Well, accidentally, okay. not, really? Well, depends, you have to go, you, I'm not saying they can't access it. what you mean it. by extreme. But if you type sex into Google, by page two, you will be directed to one of those MindGeek sites, Pornhub or YouPorn or whatever. And their homepage, if you click newest or most viewed, will include terms like incest. They're fantasies, but you are encountering immediately well, fantasies of quite an extreme type. a very answer to this, you know. Don't give uh, underage children smartphones. Oh, well, that's a lot easier give to them, implement, give isn't them, it? Give them a Nokia or something, an old Nokia. <laughs> if you want to keep in touch with them, give them one of those. It's never going to happen. I'll bet you now, any money, this time you still won't have happened, it'll never happen. No, I think you're right. But I just think the logic behind it But don't pretend kind of it's going to happen. We move I, on. We, with it, you know, this is a retrograde step that yep. doesn't make Come any on, Ollie, sense. Come on, move along, nothing to see Well, here. no, I was going to say, finally on this, one thing that I think is possibly... <laughs> a valid argument against it, even if you think, as I do, that it's broadly a good idea, is that no one reads terms and conditions ever. We know that. Of all people, someone who's kind of lusty and aroused and trying to quickly get some pornography, those people are not going to read the terms and conditions about what happens to their data when they submit their age verification. Can I randomly throw in my favourite Pornhub factoid? Please. So, uh, apropos of nothing, Pornhub, which is one of the websites we're talking about here, um, last year there was an incident in Hawaii where they accidentally, um, the state of Hawaii accidentally set out an alert saying that there was a nuclear bomb Mm. heading their way. 30 minutes later they sent a second message telling people that was not the case. Pornhub usage declined drastically during the 30 minutes and then spiked again past its initial levels um, within just a few seconds after the alert went out so clearly people were like i'm gonna pause masturbating in case i might die (laughs) but then go right back into it so you know pornhub pornhub data is an endlessly fascinating source of insights and i highly commend it to any planners out there Uh, let's talk (laughs) telly now and eastenders recorded its lowest ever audience figures on tuesday night with just 2.9 million overnight viewers. Uh, now, Boyd, the Mirrors TV critic Ian Highland, who shared the stats on this, did mm. point out that the same thing happened last July, and that was because of Love Island. Yeah. So yeah. if you were running EastEnders, does this matter? It does. I think I do think it's a, it's a problem for them, because um, if you look at the ratings generally for EastEnders, it's, it's dipping, it's going down quite steadily. And I think... Um, you know, I don't watch soaps because I have to watch everything else for for, for my living. So I if I watch soaps as well, then I you know I wouldn't have time to watch. I was going to say the good stuff. That's that's that's. It. I mean, soaps can be really good. I think Coronation Street is a fantastic program. But the problem with these centers is I was I was asking around when this news story arose in the office and my friends who do watch it and people whose jobs it is to watch it. There are people who are soap correspondents of newspapers <laughs> people and literally magazines. Literally paid to watch it. Literally paid to watch soap operas day in day I out. I could do that job. There you go. <laughs> if it ever goes wrong, um, and they were all saying every single one of them that East Enders is in a terrible state at the moment it's depressing it's always had this reputation for being depressing which i think has been slightly exaggerated but apparently right now and in recent months it has been genuinely depressing storylines going on way too long grim stories about gangs which in eastenders tries to deal with topical issues which is great as they all do really mm. but i think the way eastenders deals with things like ganglands gang stories it just ends up being miserable and depressing and they go on and on and on for too long for too many months they've had a pedophile catcher storyline don't know if you're aware of that most people seem to think that just went on and on and on and wasn't really resolved in any way it was just grim to watch it you know really eastenders should be funny smart 
addressing topical matters. That's what it did at its best and had a lot of very funny, engaging characters like Pat, you know, and, and Barbara Windsor's character. Now it just seems to be relentless grimness. And I think the ratings reflect that. And I think the um, Love Island issue, where all young people are watching Love Island on TV at the same time, roughly, that, you know, is on at nine o'clock. So it isn't on exactly the same time. It's affecting the fact that people are putting their energies into watching that than watching this dreary, miserable, depressing soap opera. Is budget a part of it as well, do you think, Karen? Because you watch the British soaps and they just look a bit shit now compared to the kind of thing we can all just stream really easily on Netflix. Well, the British soaps compared to American soaps are so different. Like, our soap are always set in, you know, glamorous mansions with millionaires and their, you know, their families. And, and your soaps are just delightfully kitchen sink and you know as you say full of a lot of misery but but I also think there's something about the the changing consumption of media because there's a lot more quality content out there available to people much more easily than there used to be and I do think soaps as a genre um, are, are adapting to that in interesting ways but it doesn't seem like EastEnders has. I think the day that all the soaps started to decline was when they went five days a week. EastEnders, I switched on not that long ago. I didn't recognise a single character, and I used to watch it mm. religiously. And you're, it, it is incredibly depressing sometimes. I think it does have that sort of gritty reality, which some of the others don't. Um, and Coronation Street, I think, is going the same way because they've got to just churn it out, churn it out, sort of so many episodes a week. The storylines last for so long. And you think, are oh, they never going to finish this one? Also, I think there will be a rethink, actually. I think that's a good point. The fact that they've become factories churning out more and more episodes. And, that, and, they, and once it became clear that, you know, you could rely on soap operas to reach, reach a certain level of popularity, which now is no longer the case with these kind of figures free standards, I think they will be a rethink. If this keeps happening... And if it's not... It, by the way, Emmerdale is doing really well, for example, right now. I'm, I'm told, you know, that Emmerdale ratings often does beats standards when they occasionally clash. And Emmerdale's youth audience is growing and growing and growing. Really? Yeah. Because that they, does surprise No, there's been a big emphasis on Emmerdale. When it was Emmerdale <laughs> Farm back in the 70s yeah. and 80s, it was different. But now they've, they've done a really... They've tried to focus a lot more on the young characters. They've had young gay couples. They've, had, it's, they've done a really good job. Is, is there a point at which, Boyd, if the numbers go lower than that, the BBC yeah. has to have a really serious conversation about it? Because they're spending millions Absolutely. doing this HD set for EastEnders, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they do. Because you, you look at, and you look at the, the, the spent, I mean, that was an extraordinary thing to spend so much money over, over budget on that set, you know. And I've been to these sets, so why do they need to have a you know, massive revamp of that set? God knows why. But anyway, um, I think they would have to look at it because if you look at the economics of it, if you're churning out five episodes of, of EastEnders a week, which is quite expensive, not just for the set, but for the actors, you're paying a huge cast of actors who all have quite high fees. Everything about it costs money. If you can stick the one show on, you know, for half an hour or even an hour every day of the week, a fraction of the cost, why wouldn't you? You know, there are factual entertainment formats they could run instead that would probably do better, you know, if they really, really thought about it. That's what we want, more Giles Brandreth. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Well, on that bombshell, there is just time for our thrilling media quiz. Normally, we ask our contributors to make predictions at the end of the year, but some media predictions were proved right this week. I'm going to give you the outline of a prediction proven true... You just have to identify it before your opponents. You buzz in with your name when you know the answer, Karen. So you will say... Karen. Ian, you will say... Ian. And Boyd, you will say... Boyd. Here's question number one. Who predicted President Donald Trump and Prime Minister Boris Johnson back in 2015? Buzz in with your name when you know the answer. Oh, I know, Tim Burgess of the Charlatans. Uh, Buzzing with your name, you know the answer. Boyd, Tim Burgess of the Charlatans. Correct. It was so unlikely that I forgot. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, in a tweet from 2015, he predicted Trump and Johnson in power in the US. 
and the UK. Um, here's question number two. Who predicted the rise of fake news in 1995? Terry Pratchett. Ian, Terry Pratchett. Uh, <laughs> David Bowie. Uh, it was Terry Pratchett, yes. Um, <laughs> well, we did too. <laughs> well, actually, it did, yeah, did David Bowie did say something along those lines, yeah. didn't he? Do you remember what? No. No. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Terry Pratchett in an interview... doing really well so far. <laughs> in an interview with Bill Gates, suggested... He gave the hypothetical example of a spurious treatise about something, about the Holocaust having never happened. And he said, if I was able to put that on the internet, make it look credible, right. then that could go viral and people would believe it. And Bill Gates said, no, because the internet will... Uh, have all kinds of ways of uh, reassuring us that our sources are valid. What are you doing? Ian's very switched on. Yeah, Bill Gates' whole point was that the internet would provide new validators and new proof points and new gatekeepers that would be absolutely fine. And I think Bill Gates probably thought that because he thought he would be the gatekeeper, but it turns out, no. He couldn't have been more wrong. And this, uh, I think it was an Esquire interview from 1995, has come out because Terry Pratchett's biographer was doing some research and just did a screen grab of it and it went mental, it's had thousands of retweets I interviewed Terry Pratchett once when he was in the early stages of Alzheimer's that was, that was a weird experience because you weren't quite sure, because I'd never met him before and mm. I wasn't quite sure whether he was being himself or not and it wasn't the easiest interview I've ever done I have to say Well let's see if it helps you with question number three Ian you've got a chance to win here Okay. What did Bill Gates predict about TV in that same Terry Pratchett interview? What did Bill Gates predict about TV in 1995? Buzzing with your name. Boyd. The answer. Boyd. Did he predict that we'd all be watching in our own time, basically like you know, streaming services aren't do? And no? For, I mean, for the sake of having a neat <laughs> conclusion to this quiz, yes, okay. and well done, you've won. Thank you. Um, <laughs> he predicted the invention of video on demand and mm. streaming. He said VHS was going to die, and we will have, he said in 1995, screens to guide you and an inbuilt personality to jump in and help. Which isn't too far off voice no? activation, is it? Yeah, that's pretty good. Well, yeah. I think he had the paperclip in mind. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. What Could a nightmarish be. vision of the future that would have been. Uh, well, Boyd, that means you are the winner. Congratulations. Thanks. But, uh, Ian Dale and uh, Karen Robinson in particular, thank you. Very promising debut. Thank you for coming along. Uh, thank you both for joining us. Uh, if you like what we're up to here on the Media Podcast and you want to help us keep doing it, then consider taking out a voluntary subscription. You can head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and choose an amount to keep us going all year round. Oh, and if you're in Edinburgh this summer, what should you do, Ian? Uh, come and see my Edinburgh show at the Gilded Balloon between 31st of July and the 12th of August. It's an in-conversation format. I've got loads of political media people. I'm reuniting Anne Diamond and Nick Owen. <laughs> um, and so we're doing one day with them. We've got Christian Amanpour coming, Dr David Starkey, Nicholas Soames, Sadiq Khan, John McDonnell. That's a good um, I could go on. Christopher Biggins as well. Now... Dr. David Starkey and Christopher Biggins is a double but act. But not together. Do you know one of the best-selling ones so far? Sir John Curtis and Michael Crick. Oh, John Curtis is a legend, yeah. Yeah, yeah fair enough. enough. You know your audience. Uh, anyway, I promised him a plug. Uh, you can catch up with our previous episodes and get new <laughs> ones as late. soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry, and The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.